rabbit tracks. Kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit. Kill the rabbit? Cycle rings if you want to. You can cycle rings right now. And if your friends oh don't God. ring, no, and if they don't ring, well, week. they're no friends of we mine. Third time's week. the charm, baby. Third time's the charm. That's what we week. call. That's what we call the rule of threes. Hi, everybody. That's Welcome what we to call I think... alienating our listeners. <clears throat> uh, you know, and if, our lives. Yeah, I mean, it's it, that'll happen. Both things will happen regardless. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to I Think You'd Be Into It, the podcast about your problematic faves. I'm your host, Brandon Beck. I'm your other host, Beth Scorzato. And uh, joining us today to talk about uh, Richard Wagner uh, and, and specifically the ring cycle, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Lee Walton. Lee, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Yeah. AKA, according to the very words of Lee Walton, that would be the creative genius and extremely nasty human being, Richard Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's gonna get it's gonna get nasty, uh, isn't it? And it's I see that be... you guys uh, did take a take a quick poke at my my background materials. Oh, I've looked at your transcript and I have it up with me here too, just because <laughs> I don't remember everything I've read. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so before uh, we get into uh, the topic at hand. Um, why don't we go through uh, some things we're into this week? Does anybody have anything? Because I'm not entirely sure I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I can go. Uh, I am immediately have forgotten every single thing I've ever watched or seen or experienced in my entire life. I'm very tired. I'm very, very tired. I'm so tired. I'll, I'll leap into the breach here if you want. Go for it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I've been running around nonstop for work for like two weeks and I'm just like, have I experienced anything that isn't rehearsal? I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's been a bit of a time cube lately. <laughs> Dumb. Uh, I was struggling with a couple of different... Uh, thoughts um i mean honestly one of the the things i've been into most recently is um fleetwood mac and specifically the undersung hero of fleetwood mac which is christine McVie. hell yeah um, mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah. Uh, best member uh at, at several points in their history the best songwriter um and you know occasionally outshone by the two noisy sexy americans um <laughs> but sort of she's the glue the whole, the whole thing together and uh i've been working on a long playlist of like her best bits for the band nice um, oh hell yeah your your playlists are uh, stellar that's very kind of you it means a lot to me oh uh, <laughs> and i wasn't sure if it was it was it would be weird to do two music things go for it no if you want to do a second thing no um but uh, so my so my backup was to say uh, zelda twilight princess um Ooh, which yeah. frankie and i just finished my wife and i just finished playing together uh after i had started it in my i don't know teen years i guess it came out when i was in college uh and then my brother took the copy with him and i never got to see the rest of it uh and now oh. it's mine again and we finally played <laughs> through it and uh i liked it a lot more this time uh i was very disoriented by that game 
uh, when it when we tried to play it the first time around, it was not what I expected, and I did not like being a dog. Um, but it really uh, fleshed out and paid off in in really interesting ways. Nice. How does going back to a, an older Zelda game feel after playing Breath of the Wild? I mean, I think there's going to be people that have that problem more than me in the sense that like there's a huge crowd of people who have like played Breath of the Wild as their first Zelda game and it's so much bigger and in a lot of ways so much better that it's hard to walk back from there to something that feels, you know, quote unquote more primitive or old fashioned or whatever. Um, sure. In this case, you know, I got started with the uh, Link's Awakening for the Game Boy and then the best one uh, Ocarina of Time for the 64 and like got very very used to those spent you know hundreds of hours on those uh so everything else is like you know a light light speed ahead light years ahead uh quantum leap forward in terms of power and technology and accessibility and like all these sort of quality of life improvements that have happened to video games over the years um so like in this one they they definitely real they heard the feedback about like switching to the iron boots in the water temple taking a million years so in this case, they made it just like a one button touch for Twilight Princess to switch boots. And it's like, thank you, Jesus. That was the one that was on the the standard Wii, right? It was. It was on the GameCube and the Wii. And they I think they had to swap the entire universe uh, horizontal because <laughs> the Wii, like you were supposed to swing your sword with your right hand. But they had already made the game where Link was left handed. So the GameCube version and the Wii version, like the entire universe is 180 degrees swapped. Oh, right. I remember hearing about that. That's that's wild. Which makes yeah. it very hard to like look up the instructions for how to get out of this dungeon <laughs> because they say go through the east door and it's actually the west door. God, that would be like if there were like two different versions of Banjo-Tooie and it would just make that game even more of a fucking hellscape than it already is. <laughs> Um, I figured out what I'm into. Oh, cool, 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 cool. The Stardew Valley 1.5 update came out. I'm excited it, about it. It sure did. And there goes all of our productivity for the next several weeks. Unfortunately, I'm working for the next several weeks, so I'm not going to have a lot of time. But in the past couple days, I did a couple days of Stardew. Uh, I would say I did like 10, 10 days of Stardew, which is like... Depending on when you go to bed, really, not that much time. Uh, sure. But and, in, in real time, that's like many, many hours. But but that's what I'm saying. Even in real time, like I went to bed early on some of them. I think I played like three hours all told since yesterday. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, the Stardew Valley 1.5 update finally came out for consoles. Uh, and so I picked up my latest game on the Switch, which uh, what I'm really excited about it is that there is some new game stuff that you can do for sure. But the part of it that really excites me is that it basically, for people like me who have played through Stardew Valley a couple times, you know, have gotten Grandpa's approval and gone through the whole thing and is now just like, well, what else is there to do? Well, now there's more to do. Uh, he added, like, an entire new area that, like, uh, I'm building a boat in the back of Willie's shop and then I'll be able to go to this islands area and there'll be tons of new people to interact with and new stores and new seeds and new animals and... Uh, there's like another section that's opened up. Well, I, I don't know. Basically, he expanded the whole world um, as well as adding some like cool like on farm new things like small things like ducks can swim now. If you put ducks near water, they'll they'll swim around and then they'll still come home at night. And it's really cute. And I have an island farm. So like 
I have water on my farm and my ducks just kind of swim around and they go visit my cows and chickens and pigs and things. It's very good. <laughs> it, now, we've talked a little bit about Stardew on the show, but uh, could you give us a quick TLDR on, on what Stardew is? Stardew Valley is, I mean, base level Stardew Valley is a farming sim. Um, and you are, you go to this town, you go to Stardew Valley after your grandpa dies and he, he leaves his old farm to you in Stardew Valley. And you are like, well, I'm going to quit the rat race and go become a farmer. So you move out to Stardew Valley and you get this farm that just has nothing on it. And it's all just like rocks and trees and shit. And you basically have to rebuild the farm and restart it. Um, and there are four seasons, you know, and like certain crops can only grow in certain seasons and you slowly make relationships with the townsfolk and depending on that, like there are romanceable options. I did that the first time I played and then I didn't care anymore. Um, you can like marry people, but there's like lots of different storylines and there's also just like some like underlying, like deeply weird, like magic stuff kind of involved in it so like there's like a wizard who lives in the woods and eventually you can like unlock a quest line by like doing enough things you can unlock a quest line where like you help him recover some something from his like wife the swamp witch who had been locked in this area that you couldn't get to until he unlocks it um and there's like all these different kinds of things you can collect and and farm and create and craft and it's just it's a really well built farming sim and because it's not real time it's a game you can continue to play which is mm. nice that's my issue with a lot of like even animal crossing um because it exists in real time like you can't make progress if you just want to like be sitting around making progress mm -hmm. um i don't know i really enjoy it i played it once on the computer and then i've played it twice on the switch and i'm using my most recent game from last year to continue the 1.5 i didn't want to start from the beginning because i didn't want to put that kind of time commitment into a new farm especially because a lot of the new stuff is going to be um it's gated behind like a year of progress yeah it's 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 gained after yeah it's gained after time like there are things you need like you need iridium bars which like you're not even going to get for the first year of your farm so i yeah I, it was easier for me to start from where i already was than to start again if i want to experience the new things which i do Fair. Anyway, I'm very excited. I, I had been waiting for it. It's been out on PC for a little while, and he had submitted the update to consoles in January, and then as of, like, earlier this week, he tweeted out, he was like, oh, it's going to be approved to consoles. It should be, you should have the update within the next couple hours, and then I was like, yes! <laughs> and then I went and downloaded Well, I had to charge my Switch, and then I downloaded it, but anyway, I'm very excited. And and that, that was also the same time you turned into a Velociraptor. <laughs> exactly. That's uh, part of the new patches. I, I I just reached my true form. I exposed my true form. Yeah, the the patch notes on Beth for a Beth one point five are pretty wild. <laughs> more sleepy, more dinosauric. You know, I I'm just happy that the that the wizard found love. I I, I didn't know that he was married to a swamp witch, which is good for him. I was going to say, like, what a profound insight to realize that they could combine agriculture simulator and kissing simulator. Uh, yeah, right. In one game. Right. That's what the people were clamoring for. We just didn't know it. And and that's that's the move now in video games is to add Kissing Simulator to uh, every genre. I mean, why not? Honestly, like part of what I love about th the way these games are headed is that like you can do this and this and this or you can skip those parts if you don't care about them. Oh, yeah. Know? Like I said, I didn't. I didn't romance anybody. I don't. I barely even talk to people because also to romance them, you have to like give them gifts and mm. people like different things. 
And like, there's a very extensive wiki and I could figure out <laughs> what to give people to accelerate them. But then like when you get, you have to like create certain heart levels and then you get to a, a special heart level. You have to get a mermaid pendant from it. Like the romance option, the romancing part is honestly like, I personally feel the most clunky and like annoying part of Stardew Valley because like it's so conditional and then on top of everything else if you then want to finally ask someone to marry you you have to have a mermaid pendant which you can only buy from this creepy sailor who stands on the far part of the beach only when it's raining in the you know spring summer or fall he won't show up in winter so if you reach the final heart stage in winter well fuck you i guess you got to play through the other 28 days before you can back and then you got to wait for it to hopefully rain <laughs> like yeah so it's exactly like real life yeah it's just so annoying. like you could have reached like you can have reached like the heart level to propose to somebody in mid mid uh fall but if it doesn't rain and then you go into winter and then it doesn't rain in the beginning of spring, you're waiting Oof. essentially like two full seasons to be able to continue doing that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, Which like real life, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about how actually the guy that I bought my uh, engagement ring from or from my wife's engagement ring uh, was a husband and wife jewelry company that like i think over the course of our engagement uh their marriage was dissolving oh no <laughs> so like the, our first consultation with them was like the four of us meeting together and the final delivery of the ring was i was in a starbucks on the west side of manhattan and he literally pulled up on his motorcycle and like handed me a pouch with the rings in it and then like got on his motorcycle and drove away to like his new <laughs> shitty bachelor pad <laughs> Amazing. So that, it's almost like their marriage was transferred onto us, and now we're. Keeping it. That would be like an amazing off-Broadway play. Did you have to find him out on like the beach in the in a in a rainstorm? I think I think it was clear weather that day. There you uh, go. But the the motorcycle made a big impression. Yeah. Oh, I bet. That was how I asked my grandma for for our ring. As I met her on the beach <laughs> during the rain. Oh yeah, you had to meet. You had to run into your grandmother by happenstance on the beach in the rain, and she gave mm. you the ring. Mm. Speaking of rings, there you well, go. Look at that. Well, well, Brandon didn't go yet. Yeah, I, I got oh, one. Sure. But mine's better segue than Brandon's ever done on this show ever. So. Oh yeah, uh, let's just save it. Yeah, <laughs> go Brandon. So um, I'm going to continue my sort of trend and going to just like incredibly granular things that I'm into this week. Please. Uh like previously I, I talked about a like a background guy in Last Jedi. Um so Weezer have just put out a new record. Um You love to see it. It's you, you really do. I mean, do we? Um I, that's about fair actually. Um I feel like every time I've talked about this on the show before, but every time Weezer puts out a new album, you're like, maybe this one will be good, and then you're disappointed. Right. That's why every other album is called Weezer. Uh, yeah, because they keep like it's like an orbit where they're distant from the blue album and then they cycle back and they have to be close to the blue album again. And then, yeah, circling it's like an abusive forth. relationship. Every yeah, time sure. he thinks maybe this time it'll be different. Well, and that, and that's what's called the Cuomo's return, which is when it gets sort of back around to <laughs> every 27 sort of... years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the thing I'm specifically... meanwhile, he has not changed the age of woman he's singing about in that entire Ooh. 27 years. Mm. Even even to the point where the monkeys were like, we need to age this up a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the the thing I'm I'm specifically into this week is a performance from 
the mid-ish 90s that you could find on YouTube if you just search Sonic Sessions with Weezer Sweater Song. Now, when you think Weezer, I'm sure that, that like, like peanut butter and jelly, like uh, two great flavors that go together, when you think about Weezer, you're also probably thinking about abstract poetry. Sure. Um, this okay. is a per- this is a performance that was on, on the Weezer like music videos DVD of the sweater song, where instead of the uh, during the boom 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 the like, party chatter stuff. Yeah, instead of the party chatter, uh, for for whatever reason, the avant garde poet Speed Levitch is uh, sitting in with the band hmm. and just uh, reads this wild poem about sweaters and like life and existence and each of you is a reminder to the earth of what it's capable of you are all the reasons jumping rational lackadaisical irrational you are ceaseless sieges on the city of joy the reason agamemnon went to troy That's you right, are your brother. own gods abase yourself at the knees of yourself intelligence is not a discipline it is an experience allow it to explode destroy buildings i'm sorry i hurt your feelings did i lose that sweater or did it lose me a uh, me me be it, it, it's it's better than I'm making it sound because it whips. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, it's it's just this really strange dichotomy between like Weezer at their most like blue albumist and this like weird New York City poetry guy who um, if you've ever seen the film Waking Life, mm. he's in there briefly talking about clowns, I think. <laughs> We are the authors of ourselves, co-authoring a gigantic Dostoevsky novel starring clowns. Sounds about right. But yeah, it's 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 a it's a wild and weird performance, and it's one of those like, honestly, this feels like the last time that Weezer collaborated with someone, and it wasn't kind of like a. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if Weezer collaborated with you know Kenny G or Weird Al? Right, right, like meme music. Yeah, this is just like. Oh, here's this weird guy sitting in with this band of other weird guys who haven't fully like turned into who haven't gone fully insular yet because people didn't like Pinkerton. Um, but yeah, it's it's a uh, it's it's a weird little performance. It's just funny because people fucking have such a hard on for Pinkerton now. Yeah, right. So moving on from Pinkerton, why don't we talk about the Rinkerton? No. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, see, it was better. We should have just let you talk about Weezer. Well, I mean, yeah, there is there is something about, you know, reevaluating uh, music that was popular or wasn't and then, like, give it time and it'll circle back around. There you go. Like... See, Lee's better at transitions than you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But that's not why I'm here, baby. <laughs> well, I've, been, I've probably been thinking about Wagner more than both of you guys. At give least. us give us give us a little give give our listeners a little taste of what oh, we're geez. what we're talking about today, specifically about Ooh. the ring. Yeah, assume we have no knowledge of opera. It could be a TLDR for now. We're going to get into it. I just want people to understand what we're talking about up top. Sure. Richard Wagner. Um, uh, he's he's a he's a big fucking deal, and he's a total asshole. And he's 
apparently the, the quote is always that like there are more books written about him than anybody else which i don't think is true because there's like jesus and shakespeare and whatever but he's up there uh and uh he was a music composer but also a writer of uh essays and books and he wrote all of his own uh scripts for his own operas uh he uh directed his own operas in many cases he conducted uh and he was just kind of a public intellectual uh sort of guy that everybody had to have an opinion about sort of a kanye west kind of a figure uh of the mid 19th century um and there's a wonderful book that just came out uh, by Alex Ross from The New Yorker called Wagnerism, uh, which I am still working through as a huge book. But it's sort of about the impact that Wagner had on sort of the entire world culture during his lifetime and then especially after his lifetime. Uh, and some of those were very good people. Some of them were very bad people. And there's a lot sort of in between. But mm -hmm. I've been trying to wrap my head around Wagner not just as a musical force, but also as a force in like the arts kind of across the board and, you know, politics and stuff beyond the arts as well. Uh, but, you know, my interest is still primarily musical um, and so, you know, maybe secondary to that, like literary and sort of dramatic. Um, but uh, also he's, he's like, because he was such a big deal, like there are people writing about him constantly, like at the time during his life. And there's some like crazy anecdotes and stories that come out of that um, because he was such a dramatic little weirdo. Um, his life had lots of ups and downs. Uh, he was constantly running out of money and begging people for more. He was constantly sleeping with other people's wives. Uh, he ended up sort of having his ass completely saved uh, by a, the new teenage gay king of Bavaria who turned out to be like the number one Wagner fan ever. Hold on, I need um, to change the thing I'm into this week from the yeah. Weezer thing to the new teenage gay king of Bavaria. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely like a really big deal in Wagner biography uh, that he he was kind of on the outs. He was in deep, deep trouble because he had joined the revolutions of 1848 uh, because he you know wanted to overthrow the monarchy and the the re established regimes. Um, and then he was exiled from uh, the various German states, uh, had to live in others. And then uh, Bavaria got a new king uh, who, as I said, is this like gay teenage boy who virtually grew up with Wagner posters on his bedroom wall. Um, and he's like, you are the greatest. Uh, please come live with me and I will pay for all of your enormous debts. And uh, I will pay for whatever crazy plans uh, that you want to make. And Wagner was like, Hmm, yes, this is this is the destiny that life has always been waiting for me, uh, and now it's finally here. I mean, I guess the lesson is get you a gay Bavarian king. Absolutely, that's my number one life advice uh, for any <laughs> uh, working artist. Um, you know, the joke. The lately, I think people have started to point out that like the only people who become famous in the performing arts these days are people who have like rich, famous dads. Um, and in this case, Wagner had a rich, famous sugar daddy who was like 30 years younger than him and uh uh obsessed with him in an unhealthy way which is a, a type of dad a type of daddy it's a type of dad yeah. <laughs> now, now how did how did you as a uh 20th century man about town uh become so deeply uh interested in this old uh european weirdo yeah um 
So it definitely was exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, but it predates that a little bit. I think I was wandering through Barnes and Noble and uh, picked up a copy of a book by Anthony Tomasini called The Indispensable Composers. Uh, and I had had for a long time been really intimidated by classical music across the board. You know, I, I, I did I took one class in college about the history of choral music, and I uh, really loved listening to people that I was familiar with. But I had a really hard time wrapping my head around kind of the field as a whole. It was just like this is you know a thousand years of work by very brilliant people, but there's too many of them. And each one of them wrote like thousands of pieces and they've been each recorded hundreds of times. And it's just way, way overwhelming. Um, so Tomasini's book was sort of helpful in picking out, I think he does like 10 different composers from throughout history and uh, like talks about them in chronological order and talks about like his encounters with them as a like piano player and critic. Uh, so then I was able to wrap my head around some of these guys. I, because I'm the weirdo that I am started making like a spreadsheet just to keep track of like what order they come in when they were <laughs> alive, like who was alive at the same time as each other. Uh, I ended up realizing that who had kissed. Yes, exactly. Who was gay, who was whatever, uh, what country they were from, et cetera. And, uh, I realized that like, there's this entire generation that is basically teens uh, when Beethoven dies, which is 1827. Um, and this huge sort of flowering of musical talent uh, of like these impish, impish young boys uh, became what, what's called the Romantic Generation. Uh, and they take, took music from the classical period and moved it into the Romantic period. Uh, Wagner is one of the youngest of those. Uh, and I... I'm still keeping in my back pocket this sort of script idea of like them all being in school together and pranking each other and so on. Um, that rules. So keep an eye out for that, you know, six years from now for the, I guess, 200th anniversary of Beethoven's death. I'll try to get a book written before then. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, then I, I started saying, okay, if these, this limited pool of composers is small enough that I can sort of wrap my head around them and I'm going to ignore everybody else, uh, which is something that I, feel like is really useful when you're trying to get into a new art form just sort of pick a couple people and say like i'm drawing the line here and i'm going to try to figure out a these couple people and then slowly i'll develop more connections to other things but you got to start somewhere uh so that was helpful and then when the uh, quarantine happens the metropolitan opera started running free uh video streams um in the month of march and still is doing it every night uh to this day so they did Wagner week, like their second week of doing that stuff. And I watched a couple and just sort of got super into it. Uh, and here we are. I was really surprised when when you mentioned those uh, Met streams. I was surprised at how, like, I had no idea the degree of, like, production design on those things. Like, I was really blown away by how, like, elaborate and crazy a lot of these a lot of like the set design and production stuff was uh, that also just felt so modern. Uh, yeah. Sort of compared to just like, cause, cause I think when you, when you think of opera, the sort of like cultural shorthand is like, you know, a lady with long uh, blonde braids dressed like a Viking, mm -hmm. you know, just bellowing, you Absolutely. know, but it's, it's definitely way more than that. Like that, that one, uh, 
that one about Walt Disney I watched like oh, half yeah. an hour of. Mm-hmm. That was nuts. That's a that's a, a, a contemporary one, and yeah. yeah, they they really pulled out all the stops for that. I mean, the Met is so so like opera production in general is you know it's just like theater production. You you can have low budget ones, you can have big budget ones, and uh, there are different sort of trends that rise and fall. There was this big period in the fifties where everything had to be minimalist, you know, and then in the eighties everything was sort of very storybook, particularly at the Met. And, and nowadays, especially, they, they often try to pull out all the stops and have huge budgets, huge shiny costumes, huge like lighting projections, you know, crazy moving stages, you know, the works, you know, it's the post sort of Cirque du Soleil uh, live production. Um, Honestly, kind of like post Spider-Man, too. There you go. Yeah. I have not yet seen a Wagner production where the Valkyries actually fly over your head and sometimes fall and die. But I would <laughs> I would love to see that. That would be real good. I think the closest that we've come to that is that uh, performance of the Green Goblin on Letterman. <laughs> there is something very Wagnerian about that. I mean, so so this is part of the angle that we can talk about is that like everything... Uh, in performing arts period there's kind of like pre-Wagner and there's post-Wagner and everything after him kind of bears his influence on some level like he invented the kind of curtain that is normally used in theaters now which is sometimes called a Wagner curtain where it like pulls from the corners rather than just being like a flat horizontal thing that drops Mm -hmm. Um, oh sure he like invented the idea of putting the orchestra in a pit and covering them so that you focus on the things on stage instead of seeing the orchestra players. Uh, he like invented a lot of ideas about like stage lighting. Um, and you know, the idea that the theater goes dark when you're watching an opera. So that again, you focus on what's on stage and you're not like examining the, the beautiful dresses worn by the rich ladies in the box seats. Oh yeah. I am well, up until that point in time, keeping the lights on, looking at everybody else in the audience was half the point. Absolutely. And, you know, there's something there's something lost there, to be sure. Uh, I, the Met actually has a really uh, fun uh, Instagram account sometimes that's just like, what kinds of crazy shit did people wear at the Met last night? Hmm. Um, that rules. So, uh, not, to, not to be lost. You know, and, and again, I feel like I should disclaimer that I'm still kind of a beginner in a lot of this stuff. I've been to one production at the Met uh it was going to see a second one right when uh the pandemic hit um but there's so many recorded productions uh and I've been you know doing a lot of thinking about the different ways that we consume music uh on stage and in video recordings and in audio recordings and you know even like looking at the libretto while you listen or looking at the score while you listen like there are all these different ways of consuming it and you get something different depending on which sort of mode you're operating in what what was it about uh wagner's music specifically that Mm. that uh appealed to you
so like a lot of the music that I loved growing up was sort of described as Wagnerian. Um, and usually that's sort of code for like, it's loud, it's long, um, it's very overdramatic. And, uh, you know, you can imagine like stabbing a dragon while listening to this. Oh, hell yeah. Um, so, you know, you're like Iron Maiden, Meatloaf, um, kind of heavy metal across the board. Um, I wouldn't have taken you for a metal guy, but I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. I was I, I, I definitely remember there was a moment in high school where I was like, I could become a metal guy. And it was like literally because I didn't know anybody else who was. And I listened I to a couple of things. This. Yeah, I listened to a couple of things and I liked it. And I was like, I could just like, this could be my thing for a while. I think we all have to cross um, that bridge at some point or another. <laughs> yes. And uh, and Jimmy Buffett history was made uh, thereafter. Yep. My, uh, my, two fa- my two first favorite bands were Jimmy Buffett and They Might Be Giants. And that says it all. Uh, you know, it's funny. The other person that I know who's super into Wagner is actually Jay Edidin, uh, who runs an X-Men podcast. And I'm actually wearing my X-Men uh, tank top today to record this. And I think there's something overlapping there as well. Um, you know, in recent times, it's become very, very clear to me that like X-Men was sort of this nexus of like weird diversity and queerness and like bombastic action and bombastic dialogue and color and explosions and superpowers and everything feels like the end of the world, uh, which really appeals to a certain kind of reader. And I think all of that stuff is exactly the same in Wagner. There's like wild colors, there's wild drama, there's uh, queerness is a little bit more of a complicated thing, but um, in Indeed, in the years after, uh, in, in Wagner's last years of life and, and in the decades after, it, it was kind of a shorthand for, for being queer. People would be like, is he a Wagner fan? Uh, you know, in the same way that you would say, like, a friend of Dorothy or, you know, super into musicals. Sure. He's from the Bay Area. Exactly. You know, and, and again, like music theater, uh, there's very, very direct links there. Um, and, you know, to this day, there's this whole stereotype of like opera queens and whatever. But um, so, yeah, X-Men and Wagner, there's a real overlap there. You know, Meatloaf and uh, uh, Heavy Metal, all of that stuff, um, you know, d- dispensing with restraint, I suppose, sure. is one way of talking about it. So, so it, it had been a name that I had always sort of heard about, uh, but was not was either too intimidated by or not that interested in getting into. But um and I, you know, I, I have to throw up a lot of caveats. Like, there's a lot of problems with Wagner, not just the Nazi stuff and not just the uh, political stuff, but the like the music. It's like some of it's really long, too long. The plots are not always comprehensible or not always sensible or good. Um, you know, he really, really desperately needed a very strong editor, and he never got one. Um, and now that I'm a professional editor, this is like very, <laughs> very obvious to me. Um, but, you know, there's there's something there that's just undeniable. You know, people talk about Wagner's music the way they talk about drugs, the way they, you know, and, and they, they love it and hate it for those same reasons. It's like, this is intoxicating. This is liable to make people feel weird feelings that they might not necessarily should feel. Um, and, you know, the... It really sort of it transport you, transports you uh, in in interesting ways when you get super into it. I will say, 
it's a lot easier when you know what's going on. Uh, and so, so that's one caveat is like, it really helps to either be watching a production or have like a, 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 a guide that you can read along with, uh, or like subtitles or a text that you can read along with, with the translation. Or, um, the other thing is that you have to sort of train yourself to listen differently. Um, it's not even the same as listening to other operas. Uh, so like if you listen to a traditional opera from one of the Italian guys or from Mozart or something, often it's this like showcase for the singer, uh, comparable to like a Broadway musical where it's like the plot is building and building. Okay. Now the singer is feeling something really powerful and they're going to sing about that emotion for three minutes and it's going to blow your mind. And at the end of it, you're going to be like, wow, what a great song. What a great aria. What a great singer. And in Wagner, that's not his goal. And that's not the way that the music sounds. Uh, for one thing, it's rare that the singer, like that everything stops and the singer just sings one song for three minutes. Instead, it's like a, this continuous flow of music and action and, and interaction and plot movement constantly. Uh, so there's not that sort of pause in the pacing. Um, but also like, the singer is not really the star of the show a lot of the time. Like the orchestra is the star of the show or Richard Wagner is the star of the show. And he wants you to walk out. Being <laughs> he wants like, you to pay attention to him for sure. Absolutely. Like you're supposed to walk out, not saying like, wow, what a great singer, but like, wow, Wagner is a genius. Uh, and which is a type that has, has not ever gone away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, the, like the Kanye comparisons are very real. God. Yeah. Um, this like megalomaniacal person who's like, you know, I am the future and uh, what I have to say is so important that I don't have to behave like a normal person. And like, there's, there's some, there's a grain of truth to that. I think in both Kanye and Wagner. I, I don't know a ton about Wagner, but isn't one of his operas about waking up in an airplane with a water bottle next to you and being yes. like, now I have to deal with this. He invented airplanes as well. <laughs> um, but actually, uh, uh, joking aside, m my only real knowledge of, of Wagner sort of before we became pals was um, back in college, we saw a workshop of a, of a play called Doris to Darlene, written by Jordan Harrison. Um, I believe that's his name. Yeah, Jordan Harrison. Um, I'll, I'll just read the the plot summary uh, to you real quick because um, it, it's it was one of the best plays I we saw and studied over the course of, of uh, my four years in school. Doris Darlene, a cautionary valentine. In the candy-colored 1960s, biracial schoolgirl school Doris is molded into pop star Darlene by a whiz kid record producer who calls a top ten hit ah. out of uh, Richard Wagner's Liebestad. Rewind to the candy-colored 1860s where Wagner is writing the melody that will become Darlene's hit song. Fast forward. Wow. Wait, what the fuck is this? This is a play called Doris to Darlene. I love this. It, it's I it's great. This. So yeah, it starts off with a 60s. So it's Phil Spector and Wagner. Yeah, basically. Um, and then we fast forward to the not so candy colored present where a teenage uh, teenager obsesses over Darlene's music and his music teacher. Three dissonant decades merge into an unlikely harmony in this time jumping pop fairy tale about the dreams and disasters behind one transcendent song. Hell yes. Hell yes. I'm sold. Yeah, the the I had, I had completely forgotten about this play until like right before we started recording. I'm like, wait, was that was that Wagner? Because that play fucking whipped. Yeah. Um. But wow. 
Sounds like a very oh, you play, Oh, it super duper is. Sounds like a play I would have fall, not gone to or fallen asleep Oh, for. yeah, you, you, it would have driven you crazy, but it was, like, 100% my, like, my kind of shit of, like... And I'm such a sucker for that of, like, the overlapping time period. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you would have loved it. I'll see if I can get a hold of the, of the script. I'm actually working secretly on a project with uh, a co-writer um, that's going to involve a similar sort Ooh. of thing of, like, echoes between past and past. Oh, nice. Nice. Um, and uh yeah i guess there's another there's like a tom stoppard play called arcadia that i think yeah might have some a similar sort of oh uh, is structure. is that the like three part one that you have to watch over a weekend i don't think so that would be the ring cycle true so you know let's uh, let's actually uh, get into it now so uh, so what what is the ring cycle and uh, how why <laughs> how do how, why, what, how do ring yeah so, so my favorite comparison to make with the Ring Cycle is that it's, it's like a series of operas. So it's a little bit like the Lord of the Rings movies. It's a little bit like um, other trilogies, you know. But it, it's also kind of like Comic Con, okay, uh, or like the Woodstock Festival, um, in that like you're supposed to go and just for like three and a half days straight, just be in a different world. And well, I mean, they're kind of saying saying that it's like Lord. I mean. When Brandon was like, what? what? And it's like, because those are two different things. One is talking about the actual piece and the other is mm. talking about the experience of experiencing yeah. the piece. Yeah, <laughs> that's Brandon. Yeah. That's what he's talking about. Two different things. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like, not like, like Comic-Con the musical. <laughs> this is, yeah. That God, would that would be terrible. That would be terrible. Like, maybe I'm getting nostalgic for Comic-Con just because we didn't have one this past year. Yeah, right? I know. Part of me is like, oh, I miss Comic-Con. And then I'm like, why? You were just going to stand behind a table being freezing for fucking 12 <laughs> hours? What were you doing? I tell you, the best way to do uh, Comic-Con is to come down on the train on Saturday, go for four hours, and then go see Fish like half an hour outside of town. Which is what he did. He gets to come down. He gets a free <laughs> he, he gets a free yep. free pass as my yep. husband. Yep. He gets my uh, my extra pro badge and then he gets to come down and just be there for like four hours and then fuck and then off. And get to see him jam a tube, baby. Like side note, like that is actually a thing that used to happen at Comic Con that we miss as like a publisher of like indie books for normal people. Um yeah. that like we you know, used to do really good business at Comic-Con selling books to just like normal, interesting, quirky people who come down from L.A. for the weekend. And now like that category of person like doesn't go to Comic-Con. Like you have to be a super, super fan to like register for it a year in advance and blah, blah, blah. It's so much harder to get a ticket. And also to sorry, folks, to get in the weeds on it for a second. Ever since they rearranged the floor, mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, everybody's all of the small press is so much more spread out. Yeah. And it's a huge problem. Anyway, yeah. sorry. <laughs> and, and to pivot back, like that's sort of what it's like to go to the Wagner Festival in Bayreuth, Germany. Um, so he built his own theater. Of course uh, he did. With the money from the gay Bavarian teenage king. Uh, and he, you know, designed it to his own specifications, you know, blah, blah, blah. He put the orchestra in the pit, like we talked about. But um, to this day, the festival is still running every year, except this past year. And uh, it, it's like a nightmare to get a ticket. Like you have to be a member of the Wagner Society of whatever country you live in, or you know you have to get on the waiting list for ten years. Damn. Um, and you know because there still is this enormous sort of global fandom for it, and going to Bayreuth is a little bit like you know as I said going to Comic Con or like going to Mecca or going to see the Pope or whatever. He actually has one of his operas, Tannhäuser, is about uh, going to see the Pope. 
Um, unfortunately, he does not punch the Pope to death uh, like in Assassin's Creed 2. <laughs> but, but so more yeah. operas should be like Assassin's Creed 2. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, so, yeah, the ring cycle, um, as I said, it's three and a half days. Uh, it's very it's, Norse mythology based. It's way too long. Yes, it's all Norse mythology. So you have like Odin and Loki and Thor and Valkyries and like trolls and giants. Um, it starts out being very supernatural and it ends up being very not supernatural. So it sort of is a gradual diminishing of the old world and the sort of arrival of like human civilization is kind of the big picture decline as it were um but uh it's one of his last works uh so his early stuff is a little bit closer to traditional opera and then he sort of the ring is really where he's stretching himself out fully to like indulge all of his ideas about how opera should be uh so it's very self-indulgent but it's one of those things where you just sort of jump into the deep end and just like luxuriate in it um you know there are Way, people have cut it up into you know, sort of greatest hits of the ring, you know, on one CD or two CDs. I think that's really valuable because, you know, it really is an ordeal. It's like 16 hours of uh, music altogether. God, it's like a it's like a fish festival. Jeez. <laughs> it's also it's like just Super like eight or whatever that was. A festival eight. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, that's a real thing, right? It was like really long, and they were balls. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, no. The festival I went to was Festival Eight, and then there has since been Magna Ball and Super Ball and the Clifford Ball. Jeez. Uh, so it's one of those things where, like, if you, I mean, you could set aside a very long weekend for it and just do one each night, or you could, you know, space them out weeks apart or whatever. Um, there's a quick plug for a opera company in England called uh, Opera North. They did an entire version of the ring that they filmed and put on their YouTube page for free, uh, which I actually think is a really good production. It is not big budget, fully staged. It is just singers in front of an orchestra with computer projections, but uh, is really well done. It's well acted. It's well sung. And the projections are super helpful. The translation is modern and clear. Uh, and the drama of it comes through because you're not getting distracted by all of the sort of props and special effects and stuff. Um, so I, that's a great sort of first ring to watch. Um, and oh, I mean, I could talk about like parts of the plot. Um, you talk you about know, anything you want to share with us. <laughs> favorite bits of the show. Uh, yeah. What, so, well, one thing yeah. I know you mentioned is that there's there's definitely so some of the music, which I mean, maybe Brandon can insert a little snippet. So some of the music that we're talking about here is actually I think much people are like. Just from hearing us talk about it may not recognize that they will recognize some of mm -hmm. this music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the most famous part is going to be the ride of the Valkyries. Oh, I didn't know that was Wagner. Uh, and you know the the Valkyries are like these nine warrior women who ride flying horses, and they like you know take dead warriors into Valhalla. Uh, and you know there's this moment when they sort of are introduced for the first time as a group, uh, and it's just like overwhelming music, and it, they're all yelling really high notes, and they're like just bombarding you. That's what sort of people have in mind when they think of Wagner. Is this just sort of like tidal wave of energy and music and screaming sort of washing over the audience? Being stepped on by nine giant women. 
Yeah, yeah, and yeah. some people, I mean, are, people are into, into that. that. Yeah, <laughs> but and and also, I from reading the presentation you you sent us, which I, I love, um, I didn't realize I was really interested in um, about how he kind of because especially as a person who has studied music and stuff, it never occurred to me that like somebody had to invent like using motifs to represent characters mm, like it's mm-hmm. so integral to the way we score pieces now like everything i'm looking at of the way that this is structured is like it seems like everything that we find very integral and normal to like how you score a larger piece and how you give people themes and stuff like absolutely like, like you know you don't have you don't have john williams without richard wagner right 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 so so yeah without wagner you don't get john williams you kind of don't get movie music at all um, and like I tweeted about this maybe last year and it was a joke, but it's not really a joke that like Wagner makes a lot more sense when you realize he was trying to make the 2019 movie Cats with 19th century technology. Uh, like he like he was trying to he was trying to do that. He was trying to make like Terminator 2, you know, but with 1860s technology. Um like he absolutely would have been a film director. He was trying to make Thor Ragnarok with 1860s yes, technology. That's, really, that's what it is. That's what it is. Thank you, Beth. So, so he was the um, he was the uh, old timey Taika Waititi. Got it. Absolutely, uh, but like way more of an asshole. I can't emphasize <laughs> enough how much of a bad person Richard Wagner was. Yeah, let's talk about how he's an asshole. As opposed kid. to just being a New Zealand he's... goof who likes to put on costumes. Yeah, yeah, he's like, no, he's really bad, guys. He, um, like, the sleeping with other people's wives thing is like, whatever. Um, part of it is that, like, he wrote all of these operas about, like, these, like, powerful, charismatic men who just have this one problem. And, like, all he needs is a good woman to just, like, throw herself in front of a train for him. And that'll fix his problem. Yeah. And his one problem, his one problem is these women. They won't right. just kill themselves for me. Oh, so he's opera Aaron Sorkin. Got it. Yeah, but like he he if you write several operas along those lines, then like certain kinds of fans are going to respond to that and then they will like join yeah, the fan club Aaron and then Sorkin. they will become your next girlfriend, <laughs> right? Like it's literally just like setting your setting up your next escape, you know, exit ramp sure. uh, from your current relationship is like, "Oh, I have three more like muses waiting for me." So that there's all kinds of like misogyny bullshit. Um the really really bad stuff is the anti-Semitism. Um which was like very real, very toxic, but also like kind of in everywhere in the intelligentsia of Europe in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like before so Wagner in some ways sort of stands in the gateway between the old world and the modern world, you know, to use those very, very big terms. And so like the idea of like countries, nation states is kind of like becoming a thing during his lifetime. Yeah. I mean, um, in fairness, Germany was still the Holy Roman Empire until like 1806 or seven or something like it, like it wasn't that long ago, like in the in the grand scheme of the memory of nations, it was mm-hmm. still like a very, very, very Christian nation <laughs> up until. Yeah, not that long ago. And I'm not saying that excuses it, but you're right. It was rampant. <laughs> absolutely. And and like it's it's much more complicated because like he knew and admired all of these like Jewish composers and performers and also like used their Jewishness as like a button to disparage them when it was convenient for him. He would basically say or do anything to get what he wanted at any time. I mean, this still sounds a lot like dudes in Hollywood now. Like, Oh, so he's opera Joss Whedon. Yes, 100%. He's a manipulator. He loves a strong woman. 
Um, mm. But he also like loves it when a strong woman like, you know, sacrifices herself in order for his needs. Yeah. Know? Wagner would have done fucking great in 2021 Hollywood. <laughs> Let me tell you that right <laughs> now. Uh, and, you know, his wife, uh, his final wife, uh, Cosimo Wagner, who ended up like inheriting the festival after he dies. The and, final wife. Yeah, exactly. She runs it for a couple decades and sort of guards his legacy. She's even way more anti-Semitic than he is. <laughs> um, like sh- their kids like start uh, inviting Hitler to come hang out during the festival. Like they're a big part of his rise to power. It's a whole fucking nightmare. And then the whole thing shuts down during World War Two when they finally reopen the festival in the 50s. As I said, it's like very minimalist and they take great pains to like remove any sort of trace of politics and like connection to the real world. So mm-hmm. it's all very abstract. And since then, they've continued to wrestle with it. You know, like generally in the state of Israel, they still don't play Wagner music. Um, there's. You know, people like Daniel Barenboim, who has sort of made a very outspoken arguments in favor of playing Wagner. And like, it's a whole thing that I'm not qualified to solve, obviously. Much like many of the like noted geniuses of history, it's complex how you interact with, you know, knowing that they have created something very important and very revolutionary and also reconciling the fact that they are not maybe great people and lived at a time where the values were very different than current modern values i mean we already don't know how to deal with woody allen and he's still alive fuck that guy yeah i mean we just we just did an episode about frank zappa and there's a lot of the a lot of similar conversations about him of like yeah this guy was was brilliant but also like kind of sucked and like really thought he was better than everyone else and like and i think the fact that he identified so heavily as a composer rather than just like a you know a a musician or a rock star or whatever i think really it really takes a certain level of megalomania to be like i have composing a a a piece that the world needs to hear oh yeah and also controlling all of the actors and the curtains and the Mm -hmm. thing God, do they, they don't, I can't imagine, having grown up playing violin, I cannot imagine playing that long, <laughs> even <laughs> yeah, over right. several days. They do, it's gotta they be do tiring. some intermissions and stuff, but yeah. it's a marathon. I mean, and, and that's just playing the violin. That's not like bellowing these high C's yeah. at fortissimo oh volume. Yeah. Um, so, so that actually takes me to one of my, one of my sort of hobby horses here, which is that like, I want, partially because Wagner's such an asshole, because he has personal flaws that also work their way into the work. Um, I just want people to treat Wagner as this like overgrown hedge that they can like chop into with a machete and take what they want. And like, don't have to worry about like the purity of the artist's intentions and like respecting the context in which it was produced. Like all that stuff is interesting, but I also just like, I get frustrated because I'm like, where are the albums of like indie folky Sufjan Stevens people like doing their own arrangements of Wagner? Like, why can't we just like take this stuff that he created and chop it up and cook it into something else? It's called Doris to Darlene. Um, there you go. <laughs> I'm really keen to see that now. I think, I mean, in a in a way, I think he also suffers in history. He suffers from the misfortune of being born closer to the 20th century than not because like 
many older composers were also pieces of shit, but we don't have as good historical records about it. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And he wrote constantly. He kept diaries. His wife kept diaries. Like everybody who knew him, you know, as soon as they had the opportunity, they published a book about like, I knew Wagner. Here's my inside story. Right. Yeah. Like this happens around every super famous person. And he's just such a celebrity. And, you know, he wrote thousands of pages in his lifetime. Like you could not get this man to shut up. <sighs> Uh, so is like thoroughly, thoroughly documented and, you know, to exactly to your point, like there's so much that we don't know about Shakespeare, for example, like he doesn't write a 500 page autobiography. God, yeah. that would be amazing. But just a bunch uh, of sonnets. It's just, yeah, it's just the work. It's so, it's and also because he was so into himself. That's an. It's also like he was certain of his legacy, so he yes. felt he needed to document it. A lot of these people, they don't realize they're going to like be this yes. historical figure until you know they already are, or they don't get a gay teenage king of Bavaria to drop a truckload of money. Pretty much, on them yeah, and like yeah. subsidize their whole lifestyle, so they just like get syphilis and die at the age of thirty, like yeah. Schubert, which isn't a bad way to go, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a great yeah, no. way either. Um, so let's see. I, I had a couple quotes that I wanted to pull out that yeah. uh, give, might give us a little taste of of the sort of messy little bitch that he was. Um, Sounds like he loved drama uh, too. The he was a messy little bitch that loved drama. Um, I don't have time to get into all of his uh, uh, affairs, but there's this great quote. He says. Um, I am differently organized than other men. I have excitable nerves. I must have beauty, <laughs> brilliancy, light. The world ought to give me what I need. I cannot live in a wretched organist's loft like your Meister Bach. Is it an unheard of demand that I hold the little luxury I like is my due? I, who am procuring enjoyment to the world and to thousands? Are um, we sure this was Wagner and not Oscar Wilde? <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, without Wagner, you don't get Oscar Wilde. I know? mean, in you, fairness, the Romantics were a similar time period, and they were also messy little bitches who love drama. Absolutely. So this is just a couple decades before Wilde and, you know, planting the seeds for all of that stuff. Uh, there's another quote where he says, um, I am much better suited to spend 60,000 francs in six months than I am to quote unquote earn it. <laughs> <laughs> the latter I cannot do at all, for it is not my business to quote unquote earn money, but it is the business of, of my admirers to give me as much money as I want to do my work. That rules. That rules. Yeah. Can that just be the new header on Patreon? Yeah, right? <laughs> just get Jack Conti to, to read that while uh, Natalie Dawn plays bass behind him. Uh, yeah. Uh, so so that's a little bit of the, of, of the man behind the curtain, as it were. <laughs> Um, yeah, he'd be a great Hollywood producer. <laughs> it's not my business to quote earn money. <laughs> I I just want to hear all of these quotes now in like a perfect Robert Evans voice. <laughs> it's not my job to earn money, baby. And like, yeah, he, like he, you can kind of understand where he's coming from, and that like he's sort of a socialist at a for for a time, right? And like maybe human beings like weren't put on this planet to like slave over useless labor and then die. Yeah, like, we were. <laughs> Um, but again, he's just, he's always, he's very self-directed and will just say or do anything in order to get what he wants at any particular moment. Um, but the, the other thing that I think is really important to get across that was a big mind blower for me was, um, the whole leitmotif thing and how, so one stage of this is like leitmotifs, you know, when you have a particular character or event or item on stage or people are thinking about them, you play a certain melody. 
And that's something that we're like very familiar with now from like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and other movies. Uh, and it's kind of woven into the fabric of movie music. Um, what I think doesn't get, come across is this sort of second level of Wagner's leitmotifs, which really take form in the ring because he's got 16 hours to play with, but that like all of these leitmotifs that he uses are mutations of each other. So uh, like there's this nature motif that starts the whole thing, which is just this like E flat arpeggio. And then he modifies that, makes it a little more stiff. And then that becomes the motif for the tree, the great tree Yggdrasil, which is like the core of the universe. And then, um, you know, we hear that that uh, Wotan or Odin, the king of the gods, you know, broke off a piece of that tree and made it into his staff, his spear. And so literally you take the, the tree motif and you turn it upside down and you stiffen it up and it becomes the motif of the spear. Uh, and like you can literally hear it in the music, the way that all these things grow out of each other. And then the spear motif, this is my favorite transformation. Uh, the spear motif represents like law and order and like obeying your promises and your commitments because Votan like carves into the wood of his staff, like all of the treaties that he has made with all the various enemies and tribes and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, so it represents like human civilization and like, you know, ancient rules that you must obey. And then he gets killed and it, and Cap gets it. The spear does get broken. This is a big. This is a big thing. Uh, and then you hear the spear motif, and then it, halfway through the melody, it starts to just splinter and go wrong, which is a great musical oh, moment. But um, his daughter Brunhilda is like the the chief of the of the Valkyries, and she essentially disobeys his law because she knows that he secretly wanted her to. It's a whole thing we won't get into. But there's this melody that represents her innovation. Uh, which so the spear motif is like bum 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 bum, uh, and it's very sort of like doomy, descending, inevitable. There's nothing you can do. That's the law. And so her innovation melody is ba bum bum ba ba da, and so it's that same. It starts the same and it continues to descend, but there's a jump upwards in the middle where she's like, okay, yes, I see that, but what if, what if we do this instead? And there's so many examples of that throughout the ring where like the Valhalla motif is just a brighter version of the ring motif. Um, and, and why is that? They don't seem to have anything in common. And then you start asking yourself, why are they similar? And it's like, well, they're both like created uh, products of a manufacturing process that took something that was natural and made it into something man-made. And both of them have this sort of foreboding about them that like maybe we weren't meant to do that and maybe the security that you take in this magic ring or the security that you take in this great fortress uh that you had the giants built for you is all going to crumble someday and you're not as secure as you think you are um you know so so the more that you think about this crazy fabric of motifs and like people have spent their whole career studying this stuff and arguing with each other about what they mean uh like there's just really really additional layers yeah he didn't like document it that way he wouldn't explain himself right well i mean he, he he was constantly explaining himself in so many ways but not in this crucial thing and telling on himself constantly <laughs> this is true uh but he did not he did not like uh explicitly talking about what the motifs were or what they meant uh, and he wanted that to sort of unfold in this sort of unconscious way. You know, this is, again, this is the point, like without Wagner, you don't get Sigmund Freud. You know, you mm -hmm. don't have this whole field of psychology. 
um, they were just sort of thinking about the way that the mind works uh, in very early stages at this point. And side note, like Siegmund is the character in the ring who ends up like having sex with his sister, mm-hmm. uh, knowingly knowing that she is his sister. He loves that. Having sex uh, and then like falling in love with his aunt, I guess, technically. Uh, well, their son. And one of, the, one of uh, them's a cigar. Their son is Siegfried. Uh, Siegfried, and, and he falls in love with his aunt? He falls in love with his aunt, which is Brunhilde, yes. Yeah, somebody falls in love with their aunt. There's a lot of incest. In, but then again, there's a lot of there's a lot of incest in any Mythology. Uh, ancient ancient yeah. pantheon. Any ancient pantheon is a hundred percent incest. And and like the fact that the the guy who invented the Oedipus complex is named Siegmund Freud yeah. uh, is just like extra sweet for me. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm touching the cat in the background. Well, I hope that you and the cat are not related. He's very good. I mean, he's he's my big perfect son. But no, we're not related. <laughs> so, uh, Lee, if there, if there was before we wrap up. Uh, we, yeah. we sort of covered it a little bit, but like, if if you had to pick like one starting point or one like thing to look at to sort of get started with with Wagner, what what would that be? Do you think one or two little sort of starting points? So I, I I actually do have like this whole document, and I can give you guys the link if you want to publish it in the episode notes oh, yeah. or whatever. It's like you know it suggested first steps for getting into the ring in particular because it's been as i said it's been recorded a million times yeah i was going to ask if we could put your uh put your notes in the show notes sure uh so there's a great um radio lab episode that jad albumrod put out uh not to like promote one podcast on another podcast um we we talk about strong songs all the fucking time (laughs) (laughs) uh that's like a one hour special called the ring and i uh, which is sort of a great introduction for like why people care about it. And he's got some musical samples and they talk to like weird fans and they talk to scholars and uh, it just kind of gets you hype about it. Um, if you're going to actually watch anything, I would say try the, f- maybe the first act of the Valkyrie from that opera North production. It's, it's very restrained. It's just three characters, uh, you know, the twins and her husband and uh, it gets across a lot of the musical ideas. Um, and it's, you know, again, a very accessible staging. Um, the other thing that I really recommend is like listening to a recording while you have the text and translation in front of you. Um, that may be like a later step that people aren't necessarily ready for. Um, but it, again, it's so important to like have a sense of what's going on. Um, there's endless debates about like which recording is the best one, whatever. Um, I've, you know, got recommendations of, you know, what I happen to think in, in my documents. I'll plug that there. But um, the production that the Met did uh, about 10 years ago at this point uh, by Robert Lepage, who, you know, is a director who has worked with Cirque du Soleil and is like part of that whole sort of French Canadian thing of the last couple of decades of like spectacle. Um is really great you know it uses this giant metal machine as the central staging mechanism so there's like these planks that rotate and it looks a little bit like um the robot from interstellar oh right Um, i think i remember you talking about that at some point yeah it like the the robot in interstellar is like this series of planks that can rotate about an axis and like perform different functions so like sometimes they're his legs sometimes they're just like he's just like an asterisk that's rolling across the surface of the planet um and that's essentially what the set of this show is uh for the entire 16 hours of four operas it's just planks 
but they put projections on the planks, they rotate the planks in different ways, and sometimes it's a stair staircase downwards, sometimes it's like a fortress, sometimes it's a vertical wall that they suspend Brunhilde from, so that it's like you are looking at her from above. Uh, it's Whoa. it's wild shit, but it totally works, and it doesn't distract you by trying to be like, well, in this version, Brunhilde is a 1950s mafia don, you know, which is you know these things that sometimes happen with these avant-garde productions. It's like, no, she's a Viking like uh, uh, Valkyrie warrior. She has a helmet, she has a spear. It's just that she's lying, you know, vertically on this series of planks that looks really cool. That is wild, and you can stream that uh, from the Met. All right. I was uh, I the summary that you had linked in your thing that I read was like from the Chicago Opera, I think, mm. and it was like, yeah, we're gonna do this one, and then we're gonna do the whole thing in April of 2020, and I was like, oh, mm. babes, that didn't happen, did mm. it? Lol, <laughs> lol. Aww. Though we did, we did never quite cover. At what point does that creepy girl come out of the well? Different <laughs> ring, babe. Different well, uh, Lee, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today um, and taking us through uh, the <laughs> wetter and wilder world of, of Wagner than I was <laughs> honestly expecting. I know that I, there were a lot of times where I just sort of opened my mouth and a lot of words vomited out, but I guess that's kind of appropriate for Wagner because that, that he only had one speed and that was it. Oh, totally. And that's also just like the whole point of this yeah. show. <laughs> um, so if people wanted to find more Lee Walton content on their internet, how could they do that if if you want them to, that is? Sure. Uh, so my public Twitter is uh, just my name, Lee Walton, L-E-I-G-H-W-A-L-T-O-N. Uh, and I you know, post about comics because I work for a comics publisher, Top Shelf. Uh, but I also post about music and stuff. Uh, I've been trying very carefully to like protect music as like the thing that I don't do professionally. Uh, so that I can still love it as much in like that sort of pure way. Sure. Um, we'll see how that goes. That's fair. Uh, I do still love comics. But I get it's that. Like, I love comics. Look, we've yeah. talked a lot on this show with me about like how much I love comics, but also how much comics just makes me want to fucking scream half the time. But it's because it's my job. It's different. Same, but with TV. Same, but with TV. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's just different. Um. So yeah, uh, it's Twitter is good. I have a tumblr that i'm still keeping up uh uh which is you know just at this point just like a private bookmarking service when i like see something that i want to remember tumblr i haven't heard that name in years yeah maybe we should go back well they got they took all the porn off of it so what was the point well they <laughs> they left the wagner i guess they left the wagner <laughs> yeah it's mostly my tumblr at this point is mostly just like david bowie like album photos and like I don't know, weird uh, British actors from the 60s. Nice, nice, nice. Um, I, that just reminds me, I should start a Tumblr of just pictures of Richard E. Grant from the 70s, but that's a complete side <laughs> side tangent. I would subscribe <laughs> to that. Um, if if you want to find more of my mess, uh, I'm at Hell Yes Brandon uh, across all of the various uh, social medias and things. Uh, my EP hat and a hat will be dropping uh, uh, imminently. There it is. Yep, there it is. Um, making making progress. Uh, just in basically about to get to the mixing stage, really. Um, and baby steps. So that that should that'll be dropping uh, on my Bandcamp. Yeah, he takes one step every three yeah, months. Yeah, yeah. I, I listen. I know that feel very well. <laughs> um, and uh, that'll be available at brandonbeck.bandcamp.com and probably many other uh, fine URLs across the internet. Um, you can also find uh, my track uh, f 
from Happy Stubby Grown Up Hour, the Fleetwood Mac pastiche We Never Should Have Banged, um, which is now available at, uh, for 69 cents at brandonbeck.bandcamp.com and features great vocals from uh, friends of the show Kaylee Quick and Mike Pfeiffer of the Hell Yeah Babies, his legal name. Um, and uh, Happy Sappy is, uh, I think, first Saturday of the month on uh, the YouTubes. Um, I think that's it. Uh, I now need to yell at my All cat right. for being on the Forbidden Shelf. Get down! She's on the Forbidden Shelf. She's been walking uh, behind me uh, on my pillow this entire hour and just being an utter terror. Yeah. Well, this is another reason why normally I go in there and I appreciate you going in there because I've got so much going on in my corner right now. But uh, yeah, when I'm in there, the big man just hangs out and is very chill. When you're in there, Kentucky has to check out everything. Oh, yeah. But if we leave her outside, she will sit on the other side of the door and scream for the entire hour of the taping. <laughs> I was doing a uh, uh, a live set on a Twitch show the other weekend, and, and it was the first time I was ever playing uh, one of my songs live. And, like, the second we went live to me, Kentucky hopped up on the desk and started just, like, sniffing around my audio interface and, like, walking precariously close to my keyboard. And I'm like, God damn it, I can't stop this song to uh, <laughs> yell at my cat. <laughs> Unless she sounds like she needs to go to Rome and beg forgiveness from the she Pope. does she does or <laughs> she truly or just does find a, a gay Bavarian king to uh, you know harass. That's right. all well, we're looking if any, for. Any gay Bavarian kings want to you know subsidize my cat? Uh, hit yeah. me up online. You can find me everywhere online at at B scores with an underscore at the end. But the easiest way to find me is to follow the podcast uh, by following at IntuitPod on Twitter or the hashtag IntuitPod on Instagram, which is always posted by me. So that's how you'll find me. Uh, we're also on Facebook if you get any mileage out of that. Thank you, as always, to Kaylin West and Tiny Stills for the use of our theme song. Starting over is a lot like giving up off the album. Falling is like flying. Uh, that's all I've got. Yeah. Um, Lee, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. It's a great honor. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so, yeah, all of that being said. Podcast over. Podcast over. Podcast over. Podcast over. Podcast over. Podcast over.